and I had to have oral surgery. I wasn't even in middle school yet. I was very young and I had trouble with my baby teeth falling out. So like I had two rows of teeth kind of growing. It almost looked like shark teeth. I had my baby teeth that refused to, um, you know, fall out and my adult teeth were just growing in behind them and it was really bad. And I remember I had to get 18 teeth pulled in one sit down when I was a kid and I also had to get oral surgery. And oddly enough, that was probably the first indicator that I had the gene because with FAP, um, some symptoms that show up that aren't related to the polyps but are related to the, the condition is stuff like uh, desmoid tumors or just bone spurs and growths. Hello and welcome to the Health Detective Podcast by Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. We bring you interviews from people who have conquered the trickiest of health challenges using the functional diagnostic nutrition philosophy and similar healing modalities. You're going to hear from experts who have been through the ringer with their health issues and yet managed to come out on the other side. If you're interested in natural healing and or functional medicine, congrats, you are in the right place. You can always visit us at functionaldiagnosticnutrition.com, but for now, here is today's episode. All right, hello my friends and welcome back to another episode of the Health Detective Podcast by Functional Diagnostic Nutrition. My name is Evan Transu, aka Detective Ev, and I will be your host for today's show, episode number 292 of the Health Detective Podcast. Absolutely crazy. Um, it's hard to picture what the hell we've talked about for 291 episodes so far, uh, but somehow we keep it fresh and we definitely got something new today, so I'm excited to uh, discuss this you know, there's going to be some gene stuff. There's also going to be some other things in this episode. Uh, so I have with me Michael. If you're watching live, uh, he's in the car. And so yes. this guy was dedicated enough. Gets out of work, hops right on to the show with us. So thank you uh, for being here, my friend. Welcome. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here. And I got no problem with jumping on right after work. <laughs> Very cool. So how we kind of do the show is I always like to start off um, with the same question and yours is rather unique. And, and this is actually cool to see how many people are on live with us right on YouTube and Facebook, because it seems like the title, uh, you know, when genes really are the problem might have got some, might've got some uh, traction here because I think so many times in the functional medicine space, you hear the, the infamous quote, genes load the gun environment pulls the trigger. Uh, mm -hmm. But there's more to it than that. So I'm getting ahead of myself. What I would like to know is when did your health symptoms start and what did they look like, my friend? Yeah. So for me, being completely genetic, my condition, I didn't have any um, symptoms prior to me getting blood tested. So a little bit about my condition and myself, it's called um, familial adenomatous polyposis or FAP for short, because that's a mouthful. And basically what my condition um, entails is I have a gene in my body that doesn't stop the growth of polyps um, from, you know, doesn't stop them from growing in my large intestine, but instead they multiply. So I have a history with it, obviously, in my family, uh, dating all the way back to like the 60s and 70s. My grandma's mom was the first one to have it in the family. Then my grandma and her sister got diagnosed. My grandma had four children. Um, you know, my mom my and my three aunts, uh, my mom and my Aunt Maria both had have the condition as well. It's a 50-50 split of you getting it. So the other two um, uh, daughters didn't get it, or the other two aunts of mine didn't get it. And then my mom had me and my brother. My brother didn't get it. I had it. My aunt didn't have children. So that's kind of how it played out. And um, the gene in our condition with FAP is it makes polyps grow out of control. So... 
because we have a family history and, you know, when my mom had children, she was aware that me or my brother could have it. And my brother got tested. He didn't have it. And it was probably a sign that I would have it. Mm -hmm. So it's there's weird symptoms, especially with um, my genetic disease in particular. So if you want to say, like, what were my first symptoms, they probably started in childhood, but they're weird symptoms. So Mm -hmm. I'll explain a little bit about that. So after we got diagnosed with my blood test and it came back positive and then I had to get a colonoscopy to make sure the polyps were there and all that was true. But when I was a kid, I had trouble with my teeth. So I had what was called um, an odontoma. It was like a bone spur that grew in down here that I had to get operated on. I had to have oral surgery. I wasn't even in middle school yet. I was very young and I had trouble with my baby teeth falling out. So like I had two rows of teeth kind of growing. It almost looked like shark teeth. I had my baby teeth that refused to, um, you know, fall out and my adult teeth were just growing in behind them. And it was really bad. And I remember I had to get 18 teeth pulled in one sit down when I was a kid. And I also had to get oral surgery. And oddly enough, that was probably the first indicator that I had the gene because with FAP, um, some symptoms that show up that aren't related to the polyps, but are related to the the condition is stuff like uh, desmoid tumors or just bone spurs and growths. Like I have one on my head. I don't know if you could really see it. It's like right there. No, not much. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing crazy, but it's like a little, eh, maybe the lighting isn't helping, but but in in certain lighting, you can see it and you could feel it too. It's just like a little bump there. And some people, you know, they could get them in their hands and in their feet and in places that are uncomfortable. So for me, in some ways I'm lucky, but I did have the teeth problems. And that was probably the first indicator that I have the disease. And then Mm -hmm. after that, us just being aware of our family history and knowing, um, you know, we went for the blood test, blood test was positive. But as far as like any gastro symptoms or stuff you would expect for having polyps in your large intestine, you know, I didn't have any of that. Okay. That, did you say 18 teeth got removed at once? 18 teeth and one sit down. <laughs> and, and I mean, you were so, for anyone that would be odd, but for you, you're so young at the time. Um, I never asked the, this next question to make people relive the stuff, but I, I am curious for, Listen, especially when I put uh, this condition in the description, someone out there is going to have this thing and they are going to click on it. And so I think it's good to relate to those people. What the heck was going through your head? Um, If we can talk about not only when you're getting these damn teeth uh, removed, but then also when you find out that you do officially have this condition, like what's going through your head at the time in those circumstances? Yeah. So, I mean, when I was a kid, I just thought that was normal. (laughs) You know, I just didn't know any better. Um, Obviously, I was aware that none of my classmates had anything done like that. And when I missed time and I told them what had happened to me, everybody was all really shocked. And at the time, it was like, you know, I was a kid. So it was kind of like a heroic badge of honor, my oral surgery that I had, you know, to show how tough I was or whatever. But at that point, I didn't know. My family probably knew, and they even admitted that, that like my grandma suspected that I had it at that time, but I was so young that they didn't want to get me tested necessarily at that age because, you know, I I was a child. I was way too young to understand at that point, and we were just going to wait until I got older. So then when I got older and I got diagnosed in high school, which I, you know, wrote about in my book, it's, it, it played a big toll on my emotions because it was a time period where I was supposed to be graduating and know moving on with life and all my friends and going to the next stage with my peers and blah 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 and i basically had none of that two weeks after graduating high school i had to get surgery it was nine and a half hours at mount sinai hospital in in manhattan so i was pretty much um you know just kind of wondering what had happened because for a lot of people you know when they get diagnosed with something they start showing symptoms they're not feeling well and they're ill and they go to the hospital they go to doctors looking for answers and sometimes surgery 
you know, helps people and they come out feeling better and all that stuff. In my case, I was seemingly healthy. And I say seemingly because I wasn't. Obviously, um, you know, the results of my colonoscopy showed thousands of polyps. And that's what happens with my condition is there's thousands of them in my large intestine. The way I described it in my book is it was like there was like bubble wrap in on my large intestine. There was just an innumerable amount of them. So for me, it isn't a matter of if you'll get colon cancer, but when and when you get it, there's really not too much you can do. So everything is done precautionarily with me. So when I went into the hospital, I was healthy. You know, I was a, a seemingly normal 18 year old who had no symptoms, didn't know what was going on with him. And the only reason I was getting operated on was because of a blood test and a colonoscopy to make sure the blood test was accurate. So uh, there wasn't really any symptoms, but there would have been. But that's also what made it hard mentally to kind of understand and try to come to grips with is I was living a normal teenage life. And then all of a sudden I went from that to, you know, in the blink of an eye, losing 40 pounds, being in the hospital for 11 days and, you know, starting a recovery road that I never imagined just a year prior. Okay. And so that's, I mean, obviously that's a huge pivotal point in your life. Um, I, I can only mildly understand this. A lot of stuff was happening for me at 18, uh, that certainly made my life different than, uh, the average 18 year olds, but this is just next level of stuff. So uh, for whatever it's worth, I, I semi empathize to the degree that I'm able, uh, did you, I guess, start to, you, you understood this a lot better than at 18. I mean, I'm thinking back because I'm 28 now, I think back 10 mm-hmm. years ago and, it's amazing how I was so confident in my opinions then and my thoughts then, and now <laughs> I feel just as confident and I'll probably look back 10 years after this and, and feel a different type of way. But um, were you scared about this? Did you find a way to embrace it? And the reason I'm asking is because I can kind of, I feel like I pick up on people pretty quickly and you to me seem extremely positive. Uh, you seem mm-hmm. like a strong-headed person. And in fact, you wouldn't be doing all these things. You could just look objectively. Why would you write the book? Why would you be getting on podcasts if it wasn't that way? So did you have that mindset initially or if not, how the heck did you develop this? Cause you do seem like you have a very positive outlook on this. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, that's definitely something that has grown over the years. So I do kind of detail this a lot in my book was the mental transformation I went through. Um, it was not all sunshine and rainbows for me at first. Uh, matter of fact, I can attribute where I am now because I went through the darkest place in my life um, after my surgeries. Cause it definitely was a dark time. Uh, I hit my rock bottom moment. I went through all the phases of grief. Why, why is this happening to me? You know, all that people, you know, when people have something bad happen to them, they question God, they question why this happens. They, you know, I went through all the phases, but I think what helped with me is, um, you know, honestly, the lows, uh, the lowest moment in my life, which I reflected on in my book was my rock bottom moment. And that was basically the moment that I, I really hurt my family and friends. So when I was going through, after my surgeries, I was having trouble taking responsibility for what had happened to me. I was living with an ostomy at the time. I wasn't very happy about that. Um, I'm sure your audience would know, but I'll just explain anyways for those who don't know. An ostomy is um, when they cut a hole in your abdomen and they stick your small intestine on the outside. And it would basically be going to the bathroom that way instead of going to the bathroom the normal way. So obviously at 18 years old, that was something that was incredibly difficult to grapple with, especially, I mean, it was only temporary, but still, even those three months with it being temporary were not easy on top of all the other physical things I was going through. And it just combined in with each other mentally. And being that my condition is genetic, it did play a lot in with my family and the own grief they had because, you know, it's passed down. It's something that's a, a risk that they were aware of. And so at the time I was really selfish. I was just kind of, 
you know, in my own world, I wasn't really considering my family and friends. I had convinced myself at that time that I was a burden to other people. I was a burden to my family. And I had convinced myself that, you know, they'd be better off without me, which was obviously an outrageous lie. But that was me being sick at the time and being down at the time. Mm -hmm. But it was because of that, me being down and sick at that time, I had this moment where I was pushing my family and friends away from me. And, you know, they were trying to reach out, do everything they could for me, but I just wasn't, you know, I just wasn't engaging. And that really hurt my family and friends. And I remember there was one day, um, you know, where I was just sitting on the couch because I couldn't really sleep in my bed since I had staples in my stomach and everything. And my mom kind of sensed something was wrong. And she asked me, you know, what's on your mind? And I basically told her, you know, do you really want to know what's on my mind? Because it wasn't a lot of pretty things on my mind at the time. And she said, yeah, tell me, that's what I'm here for. And I had told her at the time, sheepishly, not realizing that I stabbed her in, in the chest by saying this. But I said, if I'd known this would have happened to me, I wish I was never born at all. And that moment was the moment where it kind of snapped me out of that bad thinking process. Because like I said, when I was in that zone, I really thought I was a burden. Like I thought my family would be better off without me. That was an actual belief, as silly as it sounds now, especially as I reflect on it, you know, all these years later. But that moment snapped me out of it because I broke my family's heart. You know, my mom was really upset about that, obviously. My dad was really upset. And I was able to see how I hurt my family that day because, you know, my mom obviously was upset. She was crying. My dad was consoling her. And then, you know, he talked to me afterwards and said, you know, we're dealing with a lot of guilt of our own, too. And for the first time, it made me kind of take a, a step out of my own, like, uh, my own, I guess, uh, pity I was giving myself or whatever you would want to call it. And I was able to look around me and say, oh, like I was able to really realize the full scale of everything. Like if I didn't take its responsibility for what had happened to me, if I didn't try to start you know, taking care of my health, it was going to severely impact my family and my loved ones and my friends and on, and on a further level. So it just kind of made me realize, OK, things might be bad now, but I need to hope things get better and try to take care of myself for these people, you know, for the people I love so I don't hurt them. So as much as I'm, I, as much as I do have, that, that is a painful memory, admittedly, but that's a memory that I always don't want to, like, I always reflect on and I don't want to shut out and I share it with other people because it's what is the reason why I got where I am today. It's the, the motivating factor for why I am positive, like you said. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of things that happened along the way, obviously, when I finally decided to um, start taking care of myself and just taking things day by day, hoping they would get better, things did start to get better. And it was a perspective shift that was going through in my life because when you're when you're in a place where your independence has seemingly been stripped from you mm -hmm. and you're trying to build that back and you start to get those little things back, it really does make a huge difference. Uh, little examples like during my surgery, I couldn't drink coffee anymore. I love coffee. <laughs> and like that was a bummer. Right. But when I started to get better and I had that first cup of coffee again, it tasted so it tasted amazing, better than it's ever tasted in my life. And that's like one small example. And you could apply that to anything you could think of. Cause like, you know, I couldn't drive. I'm sitting in my car right now. I couldn't drive for the longest time because I wasn't well. And then once I was able to, you know, get back on my feet, driving felt good again, hanging out with my friends felt good again, having a beer felt good again, you know, like all these things that I wasn't able to do at the time, as I got them back, I had a newfound appreciation for it. And that kind of, you know, after you have so many of those experiences over the years, it just kind of makes you more appreciative, especially when you see how far you've come. So I've just had a lot of moments like that over the last 10 years. And it just makes me realize that I'm very fortunate. I'm very lucky, despite what some people might think if they read or hear my story. 
But, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm thankful for what happened to me because it changed my perspective on life. It made me closer with the people around me. It made me more present in every day and in everyday moments. So I, ch I choose to look at it as a blessing in disguise. Yeah, I'm so interested by the people who sometimes go through the worst stuff and then they end up being the most positive people. And I think that there is this, I shouldn't even say most positive because that doesn't imply that everything's sunshine and rainbows all the time, like you said, but it's such a genuine gratitude is what I'm saying. Like the cup of coffee, the beer, whatever it might be. Yeah. And I think what happens is if we don't have that comparison, then it, it is very tough. We we're humans. We do become stagnant and stuff. We look at back, like, especially if we're talking from the privileges that we have in America, how did these people live like this a thousand years ago? It's like, well, that's all they knew. And yeah. I think when it's all we know, whether it's really good or really bad comparatively, we take it for granted. And then until you get back into it, um, it just, it, it's hard to understand how nice these little seemingly minor inconveniences are in life. Uh, one question I wanted to ask you, because I, I think this is something that comes up a lot with the people that are on our show. They all have to go through this type of thing. So normally mm -hmm. uh, genetics would not be an, an ultimatum for them by any means, right? Like they, they really can have a full resolution to some of their health stuff, but what's very similar to their story and yours is that you go through this phase where, and I've been through it myself. What was me? Why is this happening to me? This is so unfair. It's not happening to anyone else. I know what's going on. And you used the words personal responsibility uh, quite a few times in your explanation. So for those that don't fully understand this, how do you differentiate between fault and personal responsibility? Because many people would say if they, if they don't, know any better they'd be like how are you personally responsible for a genetic disease that you never asked for mm -hmm. yeah so i totally get that i sympathize with both sides of it so the way i would look at it is right you can't control um the gene the gene part of it that part is totally out of your control and i sympathize with that but the part that is in your control is how you recover from the surgery so in my instance right let's say i chose a, a path where i wasn't responsible for my my health and my well-being I could be really sloppy with my diet and, you know, with my condition, I don't have my large intestine, you know, so I don't know if I mentioned that before, obviously I had to get that removed. So with that comes a lot of changes. And if I just kind of choose to throw caution to the wind and eat crap and I'll feel like crap, you know, like that still happens today. Like if I have a bad eating week, you know, it could throw my stomach off and that messes with other things. So it, it affects that way. And then, you know, for, I did a lot, from people they kind of look at me and they'll be like you know I, how did you go through all that i would never guess that looking at you right and if they would say like you know they expect me to look a certain way or behave a certain way because of those things that happened to me but i attribute that to the changes i've made to my lifestyle afterwards mm -hmm. now i can only speak from my personal experiences so some examples within my own life like i know i'm, I'm big on exercise and eating right and going to the gym because those things help me with my digestive condition you know that that helps me with my circumstances um my my disease the gene took away my large intestine that part out of my control you know that's life but the part that is in my control is i had these great surgeons who saved my life took the diseased organ away gave me new quality of life and it was basically in my hands to um you know to to make that work and to figure that out so that's where i took responsibility on my end and, you know, I get it. It's tough. Like there's still, I, I still have bad days. I still have days where, um, you know, I, I eat something wrong and it throws me off or, you know, I, I don't feel the greatest, but more days are better than bad days for me. And I kind of have to think, or at least believe that I attribute that to the fact that I'm a little, 
a little over the top OCD with how I take care of myself and blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, it's it, in a good way. <laughs> well, you can call it over the top, but I mean, you also have a abnormal situation, right? I mean, you're, you're missing, exactly. you're, you're tested. So I, I think that calls for massive action. I get that. And I'd love exactly. to um, transition into that part because this is interesting, right? You do have a genetic condition. That is a fact. Mm-hmm. But then you also even mentioned if I eat the wrong thing, I could feel a worse way. So it's not to say that we're powerless here. There, there might be a certain limit on the power that we have. Yes. I get that. But it's not completely mm-hmm. powerless. So how did you... Uh, get open, especially at a fairly young age, because one, it's hard enough uh, sometimes to find men in this space uh, anyway, like 80% of the people that go through our course, for example, are women. Um, and then we're on, mm-hmm. it's, it seems like you're still on the younger side. How old are you now? I'm 26, about to be 27 on Christmas oh, Eve. Okay, cool. So we're, we're definitely, um, we, we stick out a little bit in the space, hopefully in a positive way. Hopefully they like us. Uh, but yeah. what I'm asking is like, how did you even get open to this idea of eating better and doing this kind of stuff because it's one thing to realize that okay this is just good for uh, my life in general but specifically realizing that it was benefiting your condition I'm, I'm guessing western medicine didn't give a lot of advice there but i could be wrong so how did you get into that yeah you're good so honestly for me i just had a lot of friends at the time who were uh, big into the gym and whatnot and after going through my surgeries i obviously lost a lot of weight and the main concern was just putting the weight back on for the first year so i wasn't going to the gym i was just eating getting back on my feet and all that but then i had a few friends who were you know thinking about joining so like i had some friends who were kind of going in that direction and i was like hmm, you know like in my head i always told myself i can never gain muscle or or go to the gym or exercise because of the work I had on my abdomen or my stomach and all these things right like I told myself that it was impossible for me to to gain weight because I don't have a large intestine or it was impossible for me to do this and that so I was putting all these limitations on myself and I just kind of had an epiphany one day where you know as my friends were doing this and I had friends you know seeing them make a change kind of just had to reflect on myself and think you know and, and this is what that newfound appreciation right so like this goes back to like after a year of me getting back on my feet and having this appreciation for things that I wasn't able to do before, I said to myself, you know, let's try it. Like, maybe it won't work. Maybe, um, you know, I, I go to the gym, I try to do something, I feel a, a, a pain in my stomach, and it's like, nah, you, you can't do it. Or if i just not able to gain muscle quite like someone who has a normal system or whatever the case may be. So that's kind of how it started. It started with me just kind of trying, and for me trying to cover up insecure reasons if we're being honest like you know i was a skinny guy at the time and i just wanted to feel a little better about myself it wasn't super deep thinking but when i started is when i noticed things that were becoming an improvement so because i don't have my large intestine i have to drink more water i dehydrate easily it was really hard for me to drink water after the surgery because i wasn't ever really a big water drinker but when i started and it sounds stupid because i all i drink is water now but back in the back in that day i wasn't and in my head, like, I was like, I just can't do it. Like, people would say, you got to drink, like, eight bottles or whatever, especially since I, I need extra. So I was like, ah, that just sounds like too much. But when I would start going to the gym, the only thing that would satisfy my thirst was water. So then after, you know, working out all the time and doing that, it just kind of became a habit, and I never lost it. And then another big one, and this is something my family always busts my chop about, my chops about, is I have a huge appetite right? And that appetite, I can at least believe I attribute like 90% of that to going to the gym because exercising, when you're exercising, you need to replenish more. And at least in my, like, I can't exactly say what goes on in my body scientifically speaking. I could just tell you how it, 
like how it makes me feel and how it's impacted my life. I just know that after I started going to the gym, I can finish really big meals and not only really big like meals, but I don't really get bloated either. Like I'll still be a little hungry after. So it's just really helped with my appetite. Like I can eat three square meals a day and snack in between and all this stuff. I, I never had eating habits like this before my surgery either. So like it totally just improved what foods I can eat, how often I can eat and just how my body reacts to food. And I still feel like that's true even like today. Like if I go for the holidays, for example, like last week was a holiday week, Thanksgiving week. I didn't really go to the gym that much and I was eating like crap because that's what we all do on Thanksgiving week. And because of that, you know, I was noticing that I was just getting, you know, full and more bloated easier. And it just, it just wasn't really sitting quite as well with me. So I feel like it's helped me out on my diet side of things, as well as just being able to maintain water and a healthy amount of water for me specifically and stuff like that. And, you know, it's also just helped with being more confident in myself also, you know, mm -hmm. so those three little things all help, but it's big an appetite and just keeping up with my, my water intake. So for it encourages so good habits. Okay. For someone like you, and so I actually should have prefaced this before we went live and I apologize. So when I interview someone, especially if I don't know something about the condition, I actually, I purposely uh, try to go in as ignorantly as possible, not out of disrespect, but because I know the audience listening right now is ignorant, right? So I want them to ask, I want to be asking questions that they're asking themselves. I don't want to be five steps ahead. And so one question that I have is, when when someone gets diagnosed with this condition, is it just par for the course to get the intestine or large intestine removed? Is that just something that everyone has to do to survive or is that unique to your case? So it can go in multiple directions. Um, I'm very lucky. The surgeon group that I've had taken care of my family since the 70s um, is very innovative in, in Mount Sinai in New York City. Um, so I'm very lucky to be so close to the city. I know my family has felt that way for the longest time because, like I said, we've had a group of innovative surgeon, uh, surg surgeons over the years, and it's changed. So there's a lot of different, just for my family in and of itself, right? So my grandma had what was called a Koch pouch, and that was like innovative and groundbreaking for the 70s at the time. So it was an internal reservoir. It wasn't an external one. So people who have ostomies, it's an external bag you wear, and obviously that can be tough for insecurity reasons but the internal reservoir basically what it was is there was a tiny very tiny hole that my grandma had on her belly and it was barely visible it could be covered up with a band-aid and she had a tube so she went to the bathroom through a tube and that was her that was innovative for her in that time period and it's interesting because uh you know there's four of us well there was six but the four that i met you know my my aunt my grandma my mom we all have different surgeries or different to an extent. So then my mom, hers is a little more complicated. And honestly, since it's complicated, I'll, I'll just skip over that because it, it's just one of those things where like she had to get operated on in 2020 to get what I have now. And what she had back then, they thought she had something different. And it, it was just, they didn't even put it this way. They didn't even really know what they did to her. So it was just a different time. And I, I've benefited a lot from modern medicine. And what I have and what my aunt has just, you know, 25 years apart. So there's some minor things. My quality of life maybe in some ways is a little better, but we're both about equal. I had what's called a J pouch. Uh, J pouch is when they take the end of your small intestine, your ileum, and they create a J, you know, a J shaped pouch and they suture it together. 
and that basically replaces the job of the end of your large intestine or your rectum. So you could go to the bathroom normally and not have to wear any reservoir, you know, no internal or external. It's just basically rearranging your intestines more or less. So that's what I have. But I also know, and I know this from talking with my surgeon because I've been interested in this stuff since it's happened to me and I've done research, is that J pouches in other parts of the country aren't as common. So there could be adverse side effects and depending on how surgeons do it, can play into that. So it's honestly, it's something you unfortunately would have to do a lot of research into because there's so many different outcomes. Um, so because with that being said, because the J pouch can be so hard to perfect and it can come with a lot of complications, if not done right, the ostomy is the most efficient and easier route to go. So more often than not in other parts of the country where I guess practices aren't as experienced um, in doing J-pouch surgeries, they elect to do ostomies because it's lower risk. But at the same time, the quality of health for the patient is a little lower as opposed to me. So it's all about risk reward calculation, which practices have been doing it for a long time. Like I said, I'm very lucky. The surgeon group that's been working on us has specialized in FAP for like 50 years. So not only do they do other gastro diseases, but they actually do research FAP pretty extensively. So that's, you know, they, they have a pretty good grip on what's working and what's not working. So a small example, and this is like, you know, this is why I think everything happens for a reason and you just got to be patient. The thing that I struggled the most with after my first surgery was the ostomy. I was very upset at that. Obviously, as an 18-year-old, having to live with that is very difficult. And uh, I was mad about it. I didn't want to take care of it. I didn't want to accept that I had it. Even if it was temporary, I didn't want to. Because it was just, you know, 90 days with it was 90 days too long in my head. But when I reflect on it with my family, the truth is I owe a lot of my quality of life to the temporary ileostomy. Because originally when I went in for my surgery, it was supposed to be one part. I was just supposed to get the, you know, 10 hours under the knife, get the large intestine out, do the J pouch. And then I was going to no ostomy, just go through it. My surgery. And, and this is why I know this now. So like after the first surgery, I had the ileostomy and that helped with my healing because the second surgery was basically like being potty trained all over again. I mean, it was essentially when, when they reconnected, um, you know, my small intestine back together after they reversed the ileostomy, that, that whole recovery process was just me going to the bathroom a lot, like 20 times a day, getting used to it, the whole nine yards. It was, it was a mess. It was its own recovery in its own, but it was different than the first one. The first one was strictly physical. I had lost like 50 pounds overnight. I was a skeleton. I had, you know, I had staples in my stomach, the whole nine yards. I was, you know, I was a mess and I could barely move around the house. So the ileostomy in a lot of ways prevented me from going to the bathroom 30 times on top of that. And we actually had a family friend who did the one part and they had a lot of issues for a year and a half. They're doing better now, but they still have some issues because of that. So it took longer and it was a route that I wasn't told that I was going to go initially. They thought they could do one part. And in my head, it felt like such a slap in the face to me that I had to do two part and I had to wear it. But the reality is it was a humongous blessing in disguise because it definitely I, I attribute a lot of my health today because I had to wear it. So those are kind of like all the different routes you can go. And obviously it's person to person, family history matters a lot too. So that's like a, you know, that's all the different surgical options, basically. You said, uh, obviously a lot of your family members have dealt with this, but then you just said a family friend, and I'm, I'm not sure if you met in all these circles, how many people deal with this condition? Yeah. So, um, the, 
at the statistics, I believe, for in the United States, um, FAP affects 0.5% of all colorectal cancer cases. So it's very rare. Um, and then I believe 20% uh, of the population has spontaneous genetic mutation for the gene, which means they have no family history. It just spontaneously happens out of nowhere. And we actually know a family friend who had that happen to them too. So it's a mix of family history and it's very rare, obviously 0.5%. And then there is the 20% of people who just kind of have it happen to them, which is very unfortunate. Uh, wait, so 20% of the general population or 20% of the 0.5? Of people, yeah. So it's like of, I get not of the general pop. I guess it would be of that, like of people who get FAP 20%. Yeah, okay. That makes a lot more, I'm like, Holy crap. I'm, I'm like, I yeah, can understand no, how I haven't not, heard of it. I, one out of 200, I, but <laughs> I was like, dude, geez, I got a one in five. Holy cow. Yeah. No, um, you don't have to worry about that. But <laughs> I mean, like I, 20% of people who get FAP get it uh, spontaneously. Got it. So when you go through, um, it seems as successful as the surgery can be, right? <laughs> what is the outlook for your life now? And I, I hope this is a good one. I hope it's okay to ask this. Like oh, is, you'd mentioned the cancers and stuff. So is this like, Hey, you got this, it sucks, but now you're pretty much good to go. Or are there other things that you have to look out for in the future? We have to monitor. So again, uh, health, family history does matter a lot because um, for my family, the only like history of polyps outside of the large intestine came from my aunt Ronnie, which was my grandma's sister. And my grandma's sister, my aunt Ronnie, she passed away because she had stomach cancer, but it was more of a choice on her end. So she's, we're supposed to get scoped like every five years. Uh, mm -hmm. My mom and my aunt just did it and they got a clean bill of health. So they're good for another five. And basically when they do the scopes, they just go down endoscopically. They check the stomach, check the small intestine to make sure polyps aren't growing. If there is, they remove them. And you know, that's that it's strictly precautionary. And if you keep doing that, like every five years, you know, knock on, knock on wood. I'm in my car, so I don't have anything to knock on wood, but knock on wood, uh, you know, nothing bad has happened in my family history besides what happened to my aunt Ronnie. But that was more of a choice because she stopped going for her scopes because her husband, my uncle Jack was 11 years older and she didn't want to be without him. So it was, like I said, a more of a personal choice, but because that is in our history, they want to check our stomach and our small intestine to make sure. Now they are aware of circumstance and they know that it's mostly precautionary, but again, precaution with this condition is from diagnosis all the way through is really what matters the most. Okay. So for me, it's my family history. Cause I don't want to, if anybody else with FAP is watching and has a different family history, I don't want to speak for them, but at least in my case with um, how the gene acts with us, it kind of just stays to the large intestine. Maybe a polyp will grow in my stomach or, or small intestine as I get older but that's something that could be easily removed. No different than when someone goes for a colonoscopy, they're just removing it from my small intestine, not my large. Okay. Uh, one other question before we kind of transition, I want to definitely talk about your book that you did. Um, but in terms of the lifestyle stuff and diet stuff, exercise, getting a little bit more specific on this show and, and it's fine either way on this show, we get some uh, really, really, uh, out there health people, right? Not in a bad way, but just yeah. very specific on the diet stuff and supplementation stuff. So what does eating well to you mean? Because you said that that clearly leads to uh, more positive outcomes for you or more positive feelings. So is that like, are you going as hardcore as some of the functional medicine people or like, where does the line get drawn for you? Yeah. So I just, for, number one, the one thing that does hurt me the most is I have to be very careful with carbs. So 
with my condition, if I eat a lot of carbs, I run the risk of having a blockage or getting severely constipated, which is not fun. And I've had that happen to me before in the past. So I've learned my lesson that bread isn't bad per se, but I definitely need to be aware. Like I can't be eating pizza, a whole pizza to myself. That's a mistake I've made before. <laughs> At, like, most, many, like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everybody's been there before. And you know, for me, it's a little more dangerous than perhaps other people. Other people, it might make them feel bad. For me, I run a legitimate risk of having a blockage or anything like that. So carbs, definitely something to be mindful of. More fibery foods, uh, more heavy in protein. And honestly, something I do that helps me throughout the day or in the morning, because sometimes the mornings can be rough for me, is I'll go on like a little intermittent fasting period where, um, you know, I'll go like 16 to 18 hours without eating. And I get really hungry, obviously. <laughs> But that helps me because it just makes me feel a little more light on my feet, uh, kind of corrects my stomach if something weirds going on. It just kind of, you know, nothing's going in, gives it some time to reset itself, and then I go back to eating. And honestly, I just kind of stick to that, drinking water, not really sugary things or carbonated things because that can bloat me. Anything that can make me bloat or feel uncomfortable in my stomach area is obviously something I'm sensitive to and I'm mindful of just because I've had a lot of work done there. Okay. So you would be almost like, um, quite literally like an intuitive eater. Like you're doing things not based on a diet ideology, but based on, okay, this is what works for me. I, I can see yes. this firsthand. Uh, it's very um, obvious when it doesn't work. So you do this. Yeah, actually it's funny because when I was going through my recovery, there was the longest time where like, we didn't know what I could eat because what would happen is, you know, my mom would be making me breakfast and this is when I had the ileostomy. So this wasn't even you know, this applied to the J pouch too when I got reconnected, but this was also with the ileostomy. Um, you know, we would make something that seemed normal, something that I could eat beforehand, like before surgery, but then it would just cause trouble, right? Like gastro pain, not feeling good, maybe even throwing up in some cases back when I, you know, got operated on. And so it got to the point where like me and my mom, we made a list and we put it on the fridge of like the do and don't eat list. So like if something was good and it worked, we wrote it on the fridge and just kept running that back basically. And whenever we ran into something that caused pain or a bad night or whatever, we would put that on the don't side. And there's some things that were on the don't side that I still don't touch anymore. Like bananas. I, I don't really touch anymore because they're very, they slow you down a lot. And for me, they slow me down a ton. Like if I eat a whole banana, I could be in trouble or at least that's what happened to me the one time. And ever since then, I'm just like, eh, you know, I could do without it. It's not the end of the world. <laughs> It, it's fascinating because again, you, you're, we wanted to bring you on cause this is just an amazing thing, but your story is a lot different than most of the people that come on because the diet stuff gets, it gets so extreme, uh, for better or for worse, uh, for a lot of the people that come on. So what I find interesting though, and a, a lesson here for all of us is out of all the testing that we do, all the fancy stuff that we get into all the science, there's a, a tool that we use as FDN practitioners called our diet check record sheet. And it's not a lab test. It's not, you know, some scientific study-based thing. It's as simple as eating something and seeing how you feel one, two, three hours later, like kind of marking it down. So yeah. lab tests are awesome. Obviously, I'm going to promote them and I think they're great. But sometimes just being aware of our bodies, uh, most of us are going so damn fast throughout the day mm -hmm. that when we feel tired at 10 a.m., we would never be able to correlate the fact that, oh, wait, when I eat this same thing at 7 a.m., I keep getting tired at 10 versus if I mm -hmm. eat this, I actually feel great at 10 a.m., right? We're so disconnected from our bodies um, yeah. that we, we can't see that. And so uh, maybe it's not the way you wanted to get connected to your body, but it absolutely has created an awareness for yourself that I don't think most people have, let alone a 26-year-old guy, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
And like, yeah, that's, I still do that to this day. Um, you know, just figuring out what foods work for me and what don't. There's like a lot of weird foods that work for me. And a lot of people are surprised by like, um, like some, I guess you would call them fast food. I don't know. I'll let you be the judge, but like, um, Panda Express works for me. Don't know. Like it just, it's a safe food for me. Like I could always, if I'm out on the road and I need to pick up food and like, I don't know what to get Panda Express has never failed me. <laughs> Definitely, and I know bit. some people. I know some people with their large intestine that can't touch uh, Panda Express. So you know, I, I wouldn't. Just, my uh, yes, you know, it's it's grass is always greener. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. With this said, Michael, I, I think what's so cool is this book that you wrote. Um, so obviously we'll shout it out at the end too, but I'd love for you to shout out the title, and then I want to talk about what encouraged you to do that because. Although percentage wise, there's a small amount of people who have dealt with what you've dealt with. Uh, there's an even way, way smaller amount that would write a book on it or be encouraged to really share the story with other people. And, and that's not good or bad. I'm just always fascinated when someone affect or something affects someone in a way that they feel the need to go out, share the story with others and help others. So what drove you to do that? Again, especially considering how young both of us are. It's not like you're 50 years old writing your memoirs. What made you want to write the book? Yeah, so um, it's it's two part. Number one, I've always loved uh, reading and writing. It's something that I discovered a little later in life. I didn't really, I've always had that interest built in me, but I didn't really explore it more until after my surgeries. And then second part was, um, I definitely have to attribute a lot of it to my grandma. So my grandma, I, I mentioned a little bit before when she was, you know, a kid, her mother had FAP. They didn't know it back then. It was all, all that stuff was very unknown at the time. And my grandma's mother died very suddenly. Um, her colon perforated. So they didn't know. And that was very, you know, shocking and, and scary to her. And then she was basically thrust into this world with her and her sister being, you know, guinea pig, medical guinea pigs in a lot of ways. And so they, you know, they were trying a whole bunch of different things. And that was kind of the theme of like my grandma's life is she was always, um, you know, trying to find new ways to make sure it's easier for the rest of us down the road. So that's a lot of why I have a good um, quality of life is because my grandma, she was the type to do experimental procedures that were voluntary for research towards FAP and wow. stuff like that. And she was involved in circles like that. So my grandma, it's funny because she said this to me. So like her whole life, she wasn't much, she wanted to write uh, her story, right? She wanted to put pen to paper and and write our story, but she wasn't a great writer or lit, uh, language arts minded person. So her way of contributing to the cause and making sure that, you know, she, she referred to it as laying the blueprint down for me and my mom and my aunt. That was her way of doing it was by, you know, sacrificing her body in some ways, you know, being able to do those experimental procedures that went to research and whatnot and finding new doctors and just kind of being tapped into those communities. And I remember when I was down and out during my bad times, uh, my mom had used all her sick days and I had to go stay with my grandma. And when I stayed with my grandma, she was uh, she was really good at, at gauging me and uh, trying to get trying to get through to me. You know, I think she knew I wasn't I wasn't doing well at the time. So she had to try and, uh, you know, make me feel like I had worth and self-value, which I was lacking at the time. And basically one day when I was uh, hanging out at her house, she was cooking me breakfast and we were talking and she winded up, you know, telling me some stories about, you know, my life and her life when she was, uh, you know, going through the surgeries. And it was just something I could tell meant a lot to her. And after hanging out with her a lot and spending a lot of time with her and getting really close with her, it just kind of started to rub off on me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, 
it just kind of it was an idea that came into my head where like you know i would explain to like friends what happened to me and they'd be like oh that's crazy like you should write a book it would just come up in conversation like that and then like it just kind of like you know went off in my head i was like hmm you know maybe i do have something here i feel like my story is unique and special maybe i maybe i should talk about it and then you know my grandma being that type of person who always wanted to get our story out there to begin with and she always wanted to further research for fap and you know make it, it was mainly to make our lives easier and the family because she knew i i had it or she knew i could have it because she'd been doing this for a long time prior to when i was a kid and we didn't know i had it so you know and she knows my mom has it she knows she knew my aunt has it as well so it was one of those things where that was her way of furthering it and she spent her whole life doing it and this is my way of like picking up the torch and continuing her work so she definitely lit that in me and i owe a lot of um you know the inspiration i had for it to her I respect the hell out of that, man. That's awesome. Thank you. And and so again, with the percentage of people who deal with this or will ever deal with this being fairly small, um, you seem like an incredibly intelligent person. I would imagine it's written in such a way that there are lessons for, uh, let's say, the lay person like myself. So who would you say uh, would benefit from this? Or if you believe it would be anyone would benefit from reading it, how so? Uh, what would they get from this book? Absolutely. Good question. Yeah. So I'm fully aware that when I was writing this, that my condition is rare, as we discussed in here. And I knew mm -hmm. that, you know, the FAP community only can account for so many people who would want to read it, but I still wanted to do it for them. I wanted, mm -hmm. and I've had people, you know, like when it released people, you know, from in the United States and even a pen pal friend I have in Australia who has my condition. So it's, I've connected with people all over. And right. they're just so grateful that, you know, there's a, they, you know, they get diagnosed. They're like, what is this condition? It's so rare. No one talks about it. And they try to go look up a story to, from somebody to look up to. And there's just nothing out there. And I had people saying that, like, I was the first book they saw ever for FAP. So that definitely means a lot to me. And I'm glad I did that. But I'm also not naive to the fact that it is rare. So I also wanted to write it to shed light on other colorectal cancer cases because even though we go through different things it's we go through a lot of similar things also you know dealing with uh, gi issues so it's also for that crowd of people if you're you know ibs um crohn's disease ulcerative colitis mm -hmm. it's not the same fight but it's a similar fight so i wanted to shed light on you know gastro diseases but even on a broader level um, in my life, my experiences that I've had really led to a pretty dramatic perspective shift I've had. And I, w I could sympathize with both sides of the coin because when I was in high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't really try it much. And I was lost and confused and depressed and anxious. Like I know a lot of people in our age group, Evan, are these days. And so I definitely wanted, and since I came out on the other side of that so well now, I just wanted to be able to share what helped me personally, even though I was going through a rare circumstance, the mental things that I was going through, I know a lot of people are feeling broadly. So yes, the physical side of it, the physical ailment side, people might not be able to relate to, but the mental side, I feel almost everybody can relate to truthfully, because it's not the mental stuff. Yes, it was because of my condition, but the stuff that happened, like the things that I were thinking, the way I was feeling and all that, and how I winded up getting over it, I just know a lot of people are feeling that way these days and they don't know how to get out of it. And I just wanted to be able to use my life as an example, because I know I've had a lot of very dramatic things happen to me that a lot of people look at and they hear and they'd be like, you know, no way I wouldn't be able to ever do that. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of wanted to show that, yes, you can do it, number one, 
and that, you know, no matter what you're going through, you can go through it. And I just wanted to share my own personal pathways, which are in the book, my own little personal philosophies that I learned along the way to help what helped me live a, you know, and still live a life of health and happiness today. I, I love this so much, man. One of my uh, favorite quotes, and I'll paraphrase it just so we don't do the whole thing because it's long, uh, but it's as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give permission for others to do the same. As we're liberated from our own fear, our presence actually liberates others. And I think that's, uh, you're embodying that, uh, not only today, but just with the book and stuff too, right? Because someone else could read that. And I think, yeah, they don't even have to 100% relate to the story. When you see someone liberated from their own fear, it does encourage you uh, to be liberated from or from their own fear, then it encouraged you to be liberated from your own, um, even if it's not an identical situation. So uh, very inspiring. And we have some comments here just saying, wow, what a heavy load to carry. That was from before. Uh, mental health is a huge need in today's world. Absolutely. Right. Whether or not we're dealing with something like this, the mental health thing, especially in our generation, yeah. uh, very yeah. big, a lot of anxious, existential crises and not knowing mm -hmm. like what we're going to go do. And, and speaking of which is kind of my last question for you. What is, what's next? What's the mission? Because I know this might seem small to you because you're in it and you're living the passion. But uh, to me, it, it says so much that, you know, because I'm, we're in a similar latitude here, mm -hmm. middle of almost winter, it's freezing yeah. today, <laughs> you're getting in the car after work and you're hopping on this podcast with a smile on your face. It seems like there's nowhere you'd rather be. What's, what's the mission for you now? Yeah, so uh, the mission for me is to keep pushing uh, my story as far out there as possible with uh, groups that I feel would be applicable. Obviously, this being a medical group, I feel like, uh, you know, that's an easy audience that could 100% relate. But I also want to go more broad. So I've just been reaching out to podcasts and shows and trying to share my story with anyone who might be interested. I've also been getting involved with uh, nonprofit groups like uh, Fight CRC. Uh, NORD, the National Organization for Rare Diseases, and stuff like that. So I try to get involved in communities and FAP groups too. And I try to just get involved with those people and tap in, give back any way I can, because giving back makes me feel good, as well as connecting with others, because that's something I also value, you know, as well. And I just want to keep going step by step. I know right now, I think for right now, I mean, I'm kind of doing it, as you said, but and I'm just kind of taking it day by day. I would just, I would like to get it out to as many people as possible. And I guess I'm not, I'm still working out how I'm doing that. <laughs> but for right now, it's uh, trying to get uh, book sign-ins, speaking engagements, podcasts, just anywhere where I got people who are interested to listen to my story and share it. And I've also been, you know, giving my book out, doing donations, stuff like that. And even in the future, um, I know right now I've I've written a memoir, so it's more personal about my life. And I've told you I do like writing and reading. I would like to get into uh, fiction writing Monday, cool. maybe even write another um, you know nonfiction type book or creative nonfiction type book. But I definitely want to get more into the space of just of being an author and and getting you know writing and experiencing or creating new things. That's a better way of putting it. Okay, I I have some cool connections for that. I'll share it right afterwards when we're off air and awesome. uh, it might be able to help a lot. So with that all said, where can people find you? I still don't think we've mentioned the title of the book. So where can they find you and where can they get the book? <laughs> yep. So the title of the book is called The Bump in the Road, My Medical Journey Over uh, Potholes, Detours, and the Bridge to Gratitude. It can be found on Amazon and it could also be found on my Instagram. I have the link in my bio and uh, my website as well. So my website is www.mikecaprioauthor.com. And my Instagram is Mike Caprio underscore author. And then I also have a personal Instagram where it's less writing related stuff, but more, um, you know, just 
my day-to-day life, uh, whatever, a little less writing focused, a little less uh, focused on my uh, my condition and whatnot, a little more personal if you want to get that side of me. And that's Mike Caprio underscore underscore. Awesome. I normally finish with our signature question, which is, it's kind of a more general health thing. Uh, but again, there's no way, especially once we do the audio version of this and I kind of adjust the description and title a little bit to meet the condition. Um, we're going to get someone, uh, probably multiple people who deal with this, who just like they saw your book and we're like, oh, this is the first uh, book I've read on this. This might be, who knows the first podcast that they listen to on this. I know you've done others obviously, but who knows? So with that said, um, I'd like to make it more of a specific thing today. If we gave you a magic wand and you could kind of get every single person with FAP to do one thing, um, or maybe you could get them to stop doing one thing. I'm fine with either. What is the mm-hmm. one thing that you would get them to do just to help benefit them in their uh, place in life right now? Yeah. So I think the one thing I would tell people to stop doing, and this is something that I did for a long time. And it's, you know, if you are doing it is I wouldn't compare your situation to others online. Um, that was definitely something I struggled with a lot because I would, you know, when I got diagnosed, I wanted to know what my life was going to be like. So I would go online and research my condition. And obviously when you go online, you're going to read the worst of the worst because as my, and my surgeon told me this, my surgeon said people who typically aren't doing well, aren't going to, um, you know, they're going to post about it online because they need to go somewhere to put their feelings and to connect with other people. So they're feeling alone. And I just wouldn't compare necessarily what you read online to what you're going through. And then secondly, I just think community is the biggest thing. I don't want to speak too much on like diet stuff and what I do personally, although diet and exercise is good. I would recommend that. But as we mentioned before, um, FAP can vary uh, family history wise. So I understand some people, it might not be as easy, but the way I think through anything in life is through community. It's uh, reaching out, getting you know, tapped into a community of people who uh, can relate and understand each other. Just because that's the most important thing. If you ever need to reach out to someone, we all need to talk to somebody. You can have somebody there. I definitely wouldn't encourage. Um, I wouldn't encourage being alone and isolated. And that's something that I did that didn't help my condition. I would try to uh, be more open-minded even when it's tough, and just go out there and make things better, try to connect with people and just be more mindful of your day-to-day habits. But um, yeah, bad thing, definitely stay off. Try to stay offline reading that stuff because it's not healthy to compare um, your situation to other people online who you don't know. And then I'd say the best way to stay um, mentally clear and healthy is to be plugged in with a community. Uh, There's a lot of good support groups on Facebook for FAP um, and I'm sure elsewhere too. Uh, I know a few on Facebook though, and it's just important to uh, be be around people who are in similar situations that you can relate to, that can reach out if you know if you need help or give you resources if you need help. Michael, thank you so much for coming on today. Great to talk to um, uh, another young dude uh, just out here doing this stuff and and taking our pain, different pain, uh, but taking mm-hmm. that pain and turning it into a purpose. It's it's kind of weird, you know. You lose. Uh, certain years of your life and you feel like you're missing out on something and then you get to the other side of this and it, it, I feel like you totally resonate with what I'm about to say. It's mm-hmm. almost like the greatest gift. It's like, okay, yeah. a lot of our friends, you know, they just signed up for jobs for 50 years that they don't really like. And uh, mm-hmm. we have the unique privilege of getting to spend the rest of our lives doing something that lights us up and, and really does feel meaningful. So thank you so much for doing that today. Absolutely. Thank you, Evan. I totally agree with that. 